This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather is clear, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe welcoming you back to the inaugural episode of Season 2 of the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast. Our podcast is all about horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. We've got a great lineup of guests and topics lined up already for this year. We're going to kick off Season 2 focusing on the National Handicapping Championship, which begins in Las Vegas on Friday, February 8th. For our first episode, Keith Chamblin, Chief Operating Officer of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, joins us to talk about the NTRA's role in putting on the NHC and the logistics involved. Next week, Chris Larmy, Players Representative to the NHC, is going to join us and give us the player's perspective on this unique, exciting, and fun event. After that, we've already got some great shows lined up that will, among other topics, take a look back at the former Long Acres race course in Seattle. Several guests, all intimate and familiar with this treasured icon, will share their memories and perspectives on that beloved institution. In fact, there's so much ground to cover on that show, we're going to split that up into two parts. Among other topics, we're also going to interview an ex-jockey who will give us some insights into the jockey's life. We'll also meet with a renowned equine veterinarian who invented a life-saving surgery for thoroughbreds. As always, various guests are going to join us to talk about their big score stories. Those are always a lot of fun and offer some terrific insights into the thought processes behind them. Finally, we're going to continue our guest handicapper segments. For this season, we're going to focus each week on a particular Kentucky Derby prep race, since we know handicappers across the globe are going to be focusing on those key events. But enough talk about what we're going to do. Let's actually do something. Joining us via phone right now is Keith Chamblin, COO of the NTRA. Keith, thanks for joining us to talk about the upcoming NHC. No problem. Uh, Keith, so for the NHC, does the process of preparing for the next year's tournament, is it one of those things that it begins as soon as the previous one ends? Uh, It actually begins even sooner than that. Um, And I think what forces us to to get far, far, more than 12 months ahead of the upcoming uh, of the contest or, or the final in Las Vegas is the fact that we have a tour that uh, year-long tour that leads to it, and um, that really pushes us to make sure that you know we have um, we have tour rules, we have uh, the changes that we want to put in place each year, what new tweaks we're making to the tour, perhaps even to the final, that we get out in front and we start to promote those things, you know, almost more than a year in advance. For example, we already have the tour signups for 2019 leading to the 2020 NHC are already up and running. And we're already promoting the fact that people can renew their tour memberships. So um, while we're planning for the event that's you know, literally a month away, we are, um, we're planning for next year's and, you know, wow. looking over the horizon. So yeah, we, we try to, we try to get out in front of it. Some things take longer than some issues take longer than others to wrestle to the ground. But, um, suffice it to say that when, uh, when everyone here is in La, in Las Vegas in, 
in just a few days, um, we'll already, behind the scenes, be planning for next year's event in Las Vegas. Well, I won't ask you to reveal any of the changes or the tweaks that you have coming up for next year, although uh, I'll lobby for maybe just including the top 60 or so non-winners, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> <There you> to, <laughs> since I'm in 58th right now. <laughs> but um, can you talk about some of the changes and tweaks that you've made over time to the tournament? Because it, it, it's interesting um, to see how it's evolved. And, and I know a lot of that has come from player feedback. You guys are really invested in the, the players committee and getting feedback from the players that are involved, right? We are, and we, you know, we we conduct research with the participants at the NHC immediately after the event. We send out a questionnaire. You know, we have a, a very, very high rate of um, responses, and and we take it very seriously. We review all the sur- surveys one at a time, particularly the comments, that, and um, and you know, we use those to determine our way forward. But over the years. Um, Research on feedback from players, feedback from the players committee has led to tweaks in the prize money, um, minor tweaks to the rules. We've added some tracks to the menu. We've, we've added optional, additional optional plays from one year to the next. We added a final table that, you know, we had been discussing for several years that, you know, we finally pulled the trigger on a, on a final table format. You know, just a number of different matters, including, you know, this year when next week for the first time ever, we're going to do uh, the event on two different floors in two large ballrooms. And we're going to allow um, we're going to allow contestants to be seated with their spouse or guest who may be coming to Las Vegas to root them on. So we'll have a lot more room to work with. And we want this event to be social and a, a real celebration of the horse player is what I always say is, you know, what the NHC is all about. And part of that is being able to bring your friends, bring your 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 family members or significant others. And uh, in the past, we really haven't had enough room to accommodate everyone. And, you know, uh, individuals are in that room, as you know, you're in that, that big ballroom setting, you know, from eight in the morning until seven o'clock in the afternoon and, uh, or evening. And we know that more than half of the participants bring a guest with them to Las Vegas. And many times those guests are horse players too. So this year we're hoping to be able to accommodate friends and, and, and guests and, uh, have them be seated right there and take in all the action and root for their uh, significant other that that's part of the contest. And, uh, We'll see how it goes. I'm sure we'll have to make tweaks after this year. You know, obviously, we want everybody to be respectful of the participants who are focused on, you know, trying to win an $800,000 grand prize and nearly $3 million in prize money. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll learn this year, and we'll make tweaks going forward. But I think it'll be a, uh, a much more celebratory atmosphere with more people in both of these ballrooms. Well, I'll tell you what, Keith, from my own experience, I certainly could have used an advisor last year to pull me out of a couple of the bad decisions that I made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, but, you know, what you're saying reminds me of, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes, uh, when, when Disneyland opened back in 1955 or 1956, um, somebody asked Walt Disney, well, when will this be finished? And his, quote, his immediate answer was, it'll never be finished. It's always going to grow and, 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 and evolve. 
and change. And and that's what you folks are doing really with the the NHC. It's it, it's it's kind of interesting about the with the, with the championship. It's kind of interesting about the two ballroom thing because it was you know as you know it was a, a very crowded ballroom. Um, uh, in in a way though that that added to the excitement right uh, because mm-hmm. everyone's kind of right on top of each other and uh, uh, I was telling Chris Laramie you know head of the players committee that uh, one of the things fortunately before I went last year I talked with people who had been and I resolved to myself one of the things I'm really gonna have to do is block out the noise because I can't play every race I can't be on every horse so I really am gonna have to block out the noise and I was glad I had that thought before the tournament because it really was important to not get distracted by someone who hit the 13 to 1 over here that I wasn't even, you know, looking at that race. But uh, at the same time, I know that, like, logistically, right, you, uh, you've, you've added more qualifying tournaments, certainly. Um, and I would imagine the, the, the number of players being represented or the tickets being played is actually – growing year over year because you've you've added a lot more tournaments this year correct or at least i don't know a lot more but more i would say qualifying tournaments we've added we've added more qualifying tournaments um we've um we've had we'll have a slight we had a slight reduction this year in online tournaments and it wasn't due to um uh to a negative reaction to the nhc it's it has more to do with the growth of some of the major on-track tournaments occurring around the country and the fact that, um, for example, in, in 2018, um, uh, Santa Anita uh, and all of the tracks that are owned by the Stronic Group resolved that every time they held a contest, they were going to also give away a seat to the Pegasus handicapping uh, contest. And, of course, they had to make choices, and the choices, you know, you're going to put a certain amount of money toward that Pegasus seat if you're a host um, tournament operator, and that means you know one or two less NHC seats uh, for any particular tournament. Same goes for um, uh, the Churchill Downs properties who want to support the Kentucky Derby Betting Challenge, or Naira which wants to support the Belmont Betting Challenge, or their Saratoga contest. So while it may have a, a negative impact on the the number of qualifiers that those entities are sending to Las Vegas, we think overall it's a good thing because they're more invested in hosting contests, which are, you know, very popular with a segment of horse players. And I preach regularly that, you know, these need to, these contests need to be part of an overall marketing strategy at racetracks in that you offer them on track, online, if possible, and um, and that you write, and that you have them at varying price points because you know we can't bring new players in if every handicapping contest is you know the twelve thousand dollar Pegasus betting championship or the the ten thousand dollar Breeders Cup betting championship. You have to have a menu of contest uh, offerings so that people can play at price points they're comfortable with, and you know the, those that play in a, in a in a Keeneland Friday afternoon uh, simulca- during the simulcast season or Friday afternoon contest for $50, eventually, um, you know, gravitate to an NHC qualifier or, or another contest that all, that's, uh, you know, a little bit more costly but does offer an NHC seat. And um, uh, that's how we bring new, new customers and new fans into 
not only into the contest play, but into paramutual wagering. So um, um, that's that's really what the whole goal here at the end of the day is all about. It's not about, um, you know, trying to make the um, um, the NHC the, the richest or the or the most prestigious, which it happens to be, but also, you know, what we're trying to do ultimately is just tap into new ways to generate interest in paramutual wagering and thoroughbred wagering specifically. And one way to do that is definitely through contest play. And kind of the granddaddy of all contests is the mm-hmm. NHC. Well, it, I think to your point, right, uh, the, the more – a rising tide lifts all boats, I guess, right? You know, uh, um, mm-hmm. and while there's competition, as you said, you know, between the Pegasus and, you know, the Breeders' Cup ending challenge and all those as well, anything that gets people interested in contest play is, is a good thing, I guess, right? At the end of the day is what you're saying. Absolutely. And it just so happens that every single major contest around the country um, is a qualifier to the right. NHC. Right. Right. <laughs> I can't yeah. think of one major contest that doesn't give away uh, as part of its prize pool seats to get to Las right. Vegas, right. you know? So, um, so they're, they're all, they're all tied together. Um, some it, like so many other things in our sport, maybe not as neatly as we'd <laughs> like for them to be, but they are in fact, um, you know, we all coexist in the same space. And in fact, all of these contests, even some that someone might consider to be a, a, um, a competitor of the NHC, at the end of the day, we don't see it that way. We see this complementary and their feeders into the big tournament held every February out in Las Vegas. You know, uh, you mentioned different price points, and that's a, that's a good point that I was thinking of as you were mentioning that. You know, one of the, the things that I think uh, helps as well, um, if you're talking about you know, the qualifying tournaments is the feeders that get you into the qualifier if you win a feeder tournament. I think that's a structure that, uh, quite frankly, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who is also involved in contest play was saying, you know, Bill, you got to look at these feeders. I was like, you know, why do I want to play a feeder to get into a contest tomorrow if I can just pay the fee tomorrow? Um, But, you know, you're talking about a price point that's like one-fifth, you know, let's say on average, the cost of getting into the qualifier. And um, the fields are usually smaller in the feeders. And, in fact, my own personal experience, I got to the Saratoga contest this year because I won a feeder and then I won the qualifier. So, you know, and I, I, I got to say, this is just a personal note injected here. I had a very good two days there at Saratoga. So for 38 bucks, uh I made $7,000, right, uh, at the end of the day um, with the prize money I won out of Saratoga. And I, and I think that's – I don't know if other players are like me, but I did not really cotton onto the feeder thing until this year. And and uh, that's a nice price point for people as well to get into these things. Well, there's no question about it, and it kind of goes back to the – I think it was Chris Moneymaker who won the World Series of Poker uh, back in the early 2000s, 2000s and – it really transformed uh, the World Series of Poker and took it to the next level. And that was due to the fact that uh, Moneymaker qualified. First, he had a great last name <laughs> to be a poker player. But uh, but he qualified in a, in a $20 feeder and rode it all the way to, you know, the World Series of Poker final table and ultimately, you know, a multi-million dollar payday. 
And that's, you know, that's what we're now dangling out there for uh, the contest players and an opportunity to play for as little as eight, eight you know, less than $20. Right. Um, and, um, and ultimately, um, you know, by winning a seat into a qualifier and then ultimately if you can win that qualifier and go to Vegas, well, you've got as good a chance as anybody else in that room on that day. It could be, it could be your lucky weekend. All you need. Uh, and nobody's going to win this contest without a little right. bit of luck. <laughs> Obviously it takes a lot of skill, but it's also got to be your, your weekend. And, um, um, you know, I think the, the feeders are a great avenue for bringing new customers into NHC contest play, and uh, I think they're just going to continue to grow. And you know, now we're offering, you know, through a uh, through a new element that we introduced just this past year was the NHC uh, rating system. Mm-hmm. Now we're offering we're, we're offering feeders where you can play against individuals that have your same rating, because you know I I think um, this people are intimidated. Um, by contests and yeah, I, I used to work at Hollywood Park and we had a card club next door. And I love to play poker, but I would never ever play poker in that card club because I just felt like I was a minnow, <laughs> and these were whales that were just going to swallow me up the moment I you know took my wallet out. And um, um, so I was always just intimidated by the surroundings and, and uh, a fear of 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 losing my, losing all my money. Um, so we're trying to come up with ways for people to not feel like they're a minnow, um, but feel like they're playing against other individuals at their same level and skill set. And it's proving to be very, very popular um, to have, you know, people play against uh, other individuals at the, of their same ability. And it's not a perfect system, and we'll continue to tweak it but I continue to believe that it makes a lot of sense. And, it, you know, I, as we were coming up with the tour rating system, I kept coming back and equating it to, you know, um, golf has a handicap, bowling has a handicap, tennis now has a rating system. Why can't we have one? And um, this seems like, an, you know, the tour and the fact that we're tracking play, mm-hmm. um, even if it's contest play, seems like the, you know, seems natural for it to evolve into some type of tour that offers individuals a rating system so they can kind of see, you know, how they move up the scale and move up the ladder. Um, and that's exactly what's happening. And I, um, it's going to take us a couple of years to get it, I think, where we want it to be. But I think we're on to something. No, I actually have, and I've played on a couple of those, you know, rating level qualifiers, uh, feeders mm-hmm. too. And, and, you, you know, uh, it, it it it's interesting when you mentioned about being intimidated. And when I first started contest play many years ago, I you know I, I was going to some live tournaments down at Belmont and, and and Aqueduct, and I was intimidated candidly by some of the people that I knew. They won these things, you know, year after year after year. But um, you know, and, and I think that that's a common complaint that you'll hear about from from uh, people who are new to the contest world. Right, the same names seem to be up there a lot, and and they are, um, but. You know, one of the things, particularly, uh, I think it's true both in live tournaments and even online, is that you know, one of the things I tried to do over the years, and I think is available to players, is pay attention to what those players do. Right? Um, you know, you can glean a lot 
in person uh, and online because you can see the pics that they made of you know about their strategies and things like that. And it's really, I know for me, it helped evolve my contest play when I would look at you know like what did Paul Sherman, for instance, do a perennial you know uh, top guy there. What did Paul Sher- Sherman do in this tournament? You know, and and what does that tell me about my play? So you 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 can be intimidated. Right, but at the same time, I I look at it as an opportunity to learn from from these players. No question, no question, and you're absolutely right. You do see a lot of familiar names on these leaderboards at contests around the country. So, you know, the best thing to do is uh, become very fast friends with <laughs> right. a lot of these players yep. because they love to talk to people at these contests, mm-hmm. and and you know, it really is a, almost like a club that people follow. They tr- travel to the same contests every year and meet friends and go out to dinner and handicap together, and then they compete against each other when it comes to the contest. But we hear that over, all of the time about, uh, you know, how people have made lifelong friends mm, through yeah. contest play, particularly on-track contest play. Um, and um, it's just so great to hear that. But, you know, you can glean a lot just by following what individuals like Chris Larmy or Paul yeah. Sherman, Bill Sherman, um what these guys do day in and day out and their strategy, particularly on these, these online contests where all their plays right. are made public. Right. And, um, you know, you can see, um, um, the way they, um, you know, the way they react at races with heavy favorites and what, you know, what their strategy is for, for, for playing horses at certain odds. Yep. And, yep. um, you know, it, um, you know, they're obviously very, very good at what they do, um, but there's a lot to be learned from the way they play. And I think, you know, you see it out in Las Vegas, too, at the championship is they're very disciplined and they never panic. If there's a, you know, if there's a, a huge payoff early in the NHC, um, you know, Paul Sherman and Chris Larmy and others like mm-hmm. them, they don't panic. Right. They keep they're you know they're focused on their races their horses um and their strategy and you know not all not all the time but a lot of the time you know they're right there at the end of the contest um you know on the bubble to be on the money line or you know more times than not within the money line and playing to get to the final table but you're right. I mean, and, and and look, anybody can win the thing. They just need to have their weekend, right? Um, and uh, yep. yeah, and I think it is a really important to just keep your head down when you're at it. So let's 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 talk about Las Vegas for a little bit, Keith. When do you start sending people out there, you know, to prepare for this? You know, which is upcoming now, uh, shortly as we record this. Um, when do you start sending people out there? How many people do you send out there? What are the different jobs that they do to get ready for this thing? Well, we have a we have a lot of engagement with the our our hosts at the Treasure Island um, for months leading up to the NHC every year. We usually have our staff, and at the NTRA, we have a very we have a small uh, we have a relatively small staff here at the NTRA, and I can't think of one individual who's not somehow involved in the NA, in the NHC and. Um, you know, we'll we'll start to send people out there more than a week in advance of the championship, and they'll begin the setup process and the, the work with um, 
the food and beverage at the Treasure Island, the audiovisual departments, of course, Tony Neville, who's the director of race and sports there. And then, you know, every day just gets a little bit more and more busy leading right up to the, you know, to the day when we open registration. But um, for our staff, um, you know, we'll be there. We'll have some of our staff there for more than 10 days. Okay. Wow. Um, you know, so um, a lot of work, long hours. Um, you know, it's it's a, a, you know, kind of a labor of love because everybody's at the NTRA is very passionate about the NHC, and um, we want it to be the best possible experience it can be for all of our players and our guests who are coming in that uh, for the contest. Well, as I, I can tell you, Keith, as a, as a first-time attendee, uh, I remember, I'm sure you know Kelly Smith-Lawless, the first time I qualified. I was Kelly was one of the people that I talked to about, you know, how do I manage this thing? And Kelly said, Bill, once you go, I can guarantee you, you go, you, you're going to want to make it back every year. And she was 100% right because it was a terrifically run event. Um, it caters to the player. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. It, it's just a lot of fun to be in the – in the mix on that, but but that's from the player perspective. I know when you're running this type of thing, right? You know, the players show up at nine o'clock in the morning, and they, as you said, they you know five six o'clock in the afternoon, they're done, and they go back like like I did to my room, squirrel away, and start handicapping in. But I'm sure your day begins well before nine o'clock and ends well after five or six o'clock, right? How much how much sleep are you able to get during those days? Well, not not a whole lot, and it's com- <laughs> compounded by the fact that we're coming in there on East Coast yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm usually downstairs by no later than 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. local time. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, we usually, um, our staff gets, we, we kind of bring them in in shifts, but the first shifts come in about 6.30 in the morning. Um, and then we'll have people who are staying, you know, as late as seven or eight o'clock for, um, you know, once we make the day official, um, that takes a little bit of time. Then we go through, uh, an auditing process that is, um, really to, to, um, not only take care of that first day or the second day's audit, um, but also just to, uh, so that we don't have to go through some things at the end of the contest, that could have otherwise been taken mm, care okay. of after each particular day. So, um, you know, we'll have, we'll have, uh, you know, we've got a group that focuses on registration and, um, all of that. And then we've got another team that's the auditing team. Uh, and then we've got, um, uh, just, you know, individuals who are, are, um, uh, you know, work in the room, to, available to answer questions. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, we do everything from announcing when the mandatory races are coming up, scratches and changes, you name it. Um, so it's it's long days. It's, it's you know, it's it's 15-hour days mm. um, minimally, um, you know, up on that second level at the Treasure yeah. Island. And I think it's going to be um, – um, you know, it's going to be a bit of a challenge this year because we're going to be on two different floors in two different ballrooms. Now they're right on top of each other, but um, that's you know we've got some some new changes yeah, this year yeah. that I think are, are we're going to have to work through. And I I'm, I'm think everything's going to go fine, but I'm sure we'll want to make tweaks and we'll you know we'll learn a lot this year and 
go from there. Yeah, but we love the TI. It's a great look. You know, mm. it's just a perfect location. Um, it's um, the owner, Phil Ruffin, is a horse player, loves mm. the game, um, and, um, uh, you know, is passionate about this event. And, um, in fact, every year that we've had it there, you know, he's, he's um, made it a point to come up and address the uh, the players and talk for a few minutes and I've been told by not only Tony Neville the race and sportsbook operator but also the general manager there at the TI that he's a very publicity shy and oh, um, wow. just okay. you know okay. just yeah. doesn't doesn't do that yeah. um, uh, but but absolutely demands that he be reminded that you know our events there and uh, what time does he need to go up there and and you know say a few words to the players? And of course, he's always respectful to keep his remarks short because he knows everybody's studying the phrasing <laughs> form. And uh, and you know that's that's yep. the beauty of, of partnering with with a hotel property that understands horse players. <laughs> so uh, Keith, do you ever have any downtime after this thing is over to just? unwind a little bit uh, of course unwinding in las vegas is probably hard to do but uh you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know it, it's um that usually takes care takes place about 30 days later okay. um okay. when we try to get a little break i some of our crew will stay around in las vegas for a day or two afterwards to pack up mm-hmm. and you know kind of clean up any loose ends but for most of us, you know, we're out of there first thing Monday morning, and it's back to Lexington and, and you know, back to our day jobs. And keep in mind, we're also, when this airs, it'll be, we, we will have just concluded hosting the Eclipse Awards in Miami, Florida. Oh, wow. And, um, sure. you know, that takes a lot of, yeah. um, that's another very large event, a very important event. And, um, uh, you know, we own and manage um, the Eclipse Awards every year, so we have two of our biggest events of the year taking place oh within gosh. two weekends of each other. Oh. And in, in some years, they've actually been on back-to-back weekends. So we've had to literally um, fly from Miami directly to Las Vegas <laughs> and into the very you know the next event the next weekend. Wow, like a Chuck Berry song almost. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So thankfully, we have a lot of dedicated employees. <laughs> yeah, you must, yeah, because because that's uh, that's quite a string. That's quite a pair of back to back events, actually. Keith, you mentioned you worked at Hollywood Park. What brought you to the NTRA? I worked at Hollywood Park in the mid '90s for R. D. Hubbard. Oh wow! And yeah. when D. sold the track to Churchill Downs, at about the exact same time, I was approached by Tim Smith at the NTRA to come work for the NTRA. And it just seemed that the timing was right. Hubbard D was on the board of the NTRA during those formative years. They, they had been up and running for less than 12 months, but we're making some changes and they extended the invitation to me to, to move from Los Angeles to Lexington, Kentucky to be part of the NTRA. And that's, Never regretted a moment of it since making the move. Uh, it's been terrific, and uh, you know, interestingly enough, the the concept of the NHC evolved from a conversation between Tim Smith and Steve Christ, who at the time mm, was sure. the chairman and publisher of Daily Racing mm-hmm. Form. And Tim and Steve 
were talking, and they determined that wouldn't it be great if we could honor a horse player, whether it be symbolically or through some mechanism every year at the Eclipse Awards and present an Eclipse Award to a horse player. And they both agreed that this was, you know, a terrific idea. And then what evolved from that was they brought me into the conversation and said, how do we do it? How do we, who, how do we determine who that individual will be? And what evolved from there was the idea of hosting handicapping contests around the country and then having a championship Mm. at the end of the year. And that would be how we would determine who we were going to honor at the Eclipse Awards. And no, it's it's not intended to say you're the you're the best handicapper in the country, but it is a mechanism for at least recognizing the horse player. Mm, yeah. And it's yeah. been that way ever since. And that's kind of how it all started. And there were a lot of people involved in the championship and, and how it all came together, including Mandy Menger at Daily Racing Forum, myself, of course, Steve, um, Steve Chris, mm-hmm. um, Ken Kurtner. Um, but kind of my role in those early days was to, to go around and try to get racetracks to participate in what at the time was just an idea on a piece of paper and say, all you have to do is you have to host a handicapping contest at your track. We'll um, give away... We're going to sell seats. We're going to give away two, three, however many, Mm -hmm. and that's what's going to generate the prize money for the pool in Las for the prize pool in Las Vegas. And you know, it started with I think our first purse was two hundred thousand, and we paid a hundred thousand to the winner, Steve uh, Steve Walker Mm -hmm. from Omaha, Nebraska, and um, it's just grown every year since into you know what it is now. So truly been one of the great success stories in our industry and one of the few things where we have a lot of different racetracks, ADWs, others who, who frankly, in so many ways, compete for customers every day of the year. They all participate in this national promotion uh, for the benefit of the horse player. And it's it's just, you know, been a great success story on them. Yeah, I was. A I, number. Of I was struck. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that that cooperation because I was struck by uh, when I had a conversation with Chris Larmy, which will air the week uh, after this one. But one of the things I hadn't thought about was the the discussion with the tracks about particularly the final table races. You know, can you make sure that as you get to the end of the cards, like at Santa Anita, we've got a race that that's, you know it's got some full fields in there. We've got races that have got some full fields in there, right? So that we can really. You know, make it the challenge that it should be for the the players. And I thought, wow, that's a that's, you know, cooperation is not a term that's often used in the racing industry, and that that's a that's a pretty unprecedented level of co- cooperation actually to to get the tracks to work alongside you to make the tournament races be really much that much more meaningful. And we start those conversations with the tracks about a month out. Okay, and. Um and then, you know, as we get closer to the event, uh, particularly the final day, um, you know, we, we, we almost have daily emails with the racing officials at the tracks, particularly Santa Anita, where we know just due to the, due to the schedule and the, and the time um, that, you know, we know we're going to, we want to end on a 
you know, one or two races with very full competitive fields um, with a lot of liquidity mm. in those mm-hmm. um, pools, those wagering pools. And um, frank, uh, thankfully, you know, Santa Anita's deliver that and they deliver it very well. Mm. So, uh, but, you know, we're, we're always talking to them there at the end about, you know, what kind of races to card on that Sunday afternoon late, late on their card. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith, I can tell you, uh, for anyone that's listening that hasn't participated before or, you know, is thinking about participating, uh, and, and I'm a one-time player, and I hope by the time this airs I'll be a, a, a two-time player. It's a terrific event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's well-managed. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And as, as Kelly Smith-Lawless told me, I said, once you once you get to it, you'll, you will want to get to it over and over again. So my hat's off to you guys for everything you do to make it such a terrific event. Well, thank you, but the real thanks thanks needs to go to the horse players and the racing organizations that participate in it throughout the year because they're what uh, without them we wouldn't have be able to send you know seven have seven hundred entries in in Las Vegas every February. So it's a credit to the racing organizations that participate, and then obviously to the horse players who compete for these seats every year. And and I must say. I've never, um, like your friend said, I've never met a single individual, and I've been to 19 NHCs, and this week will be the 20th, and I've never met somebody who's attended who didn't want to get back the next year. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that's one of the great attributes of the event is the fact that you can't buy in. You have to earn your way back in. and that's why it makes it so special for everyone who's participating because they're a winner just by getting there. Forget about how they do in Las Vegas. It's just so hard to get there. Yeah. And that's why it's such a celebration of the horse player, regardless of whether you, you have a great weekend in Las Vegas or not. Not everybody's going to, um, but they've really accomplished something just by getting there. We're really very grateful to Keith for sharing his observations and insights into the NHC. He also shared with us a prescient big score story, given his and others' subsequently successful efforts to rewrite the IRS tax code to align the treatment of winnings at the track more directly with the way players often structure those tickets that end up in a big score. I'll let Keith tell the rest. The biggest score I ever had was actually with um, four friends, and I'm, I'm not a huge horse player. I bet probably about you know, between $25, $50 a race um, and a um, little more than a $2 player, but, you know, certainly mm-hmm. not a huge sure. player. Uh, but we hit a, um, I can't even remember the year, but we were at Saratoga and we hit a superfecta in the Arlington Million. And we were watching it from a box at Saratoga. And it actually took place shortly after the last live race at Saratoga. And um, we we hit for about just under five thousand dollars, and uh, and it was a relatively small ticket, and it was an IRS ticket, and I remember uh, we were walking around uh, Saratoga, which, as I said, was had just finished up, mm-hmm. and we couldn't find an IRS window to cash out, <laughs> and we had to go all the way down to the end of the grandstand. Um, and but we eventually found one, and then we had to, you know, draw straws to see who would actually right, cash right, the so, ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and I remember it very well. But it was a great day. We each walked away with over a thousand dollars, and um, 
Um, and you know, that's a lot of money for, I don't play the pick six very often. And, mm. um, if I do, I just usually just throw $20 into a pool or, or 50 and, you know, after two races, we're out. <laughs> you know, right, that right, seems right. to be my experience yeah, yeah, yeah. with it. Yeah. But, um, uh, but it was, uh, all the more fitting, uh, given that, you know, Many, many years later, I played a small role right. in, you know, getting rid of this withholding and reporting right, right, uh, right. issue, which was so yes. unfair to horse players. Yes. And, you know, um, so it was, uh, I see it as justice. <laughs> <you know? laughs> uh, but um, the uh, that was probably the most enjoyable score. I've had a couple of others that were, you know, about a thousand dollars. But uh, that to do that with friends and uh, yeah. to be at Saratoga yeah. and have that kind of experience, and we were watching it on TV at Arlington uh, on a monitor in a box that we just all <laughs> filed, kind of piled into just to oh, watch that great. race. Um, you know, was a, was a really fun day, and then it turned into a really fun evening. Of course. Well, I always say the best, I said to TK Cooler, who was a guest uh, last season, I said the best the best stakes are those that come when you pay with other people's money. So, uh, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, as you were you telling bet. that story, I was thinking about it too. Yeah, because I was thinking about the whole the elimination of the IRS, you know, withholding, which is a terrific uh, accomplishment that you guys, uh, I know, in conjunction with a bunch of people, had, but as, as you were telling that story, I was thinking, how many people will say that they actually went looking for the IRS, right? Most people yeah, are afraid yeah. that the IRS are going to come looking for them. You had to go looking Only for them. Only in horse racing. <laughs> Only in horse racing. I love that story. Like I said, how many people will voluntarily go looking for the IRS? And it's an opportunity for everyone to say thanks again on behalf of all horse players to Keith and everyone involved in working with the IRS and others over many years to more equitably calculate when a big score requires withholding. Finally, we'll close this opening episode as we always do with our guest handicapper. As I mentioned, our guest handicappers this year are going to focus on the key Kentucky Derby prep races each week as we build up to the first Saturday in May. Our handicapping segment is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. So kicking off Season 2, as he did Season 1, is Matt Packard. Matt gave us a nice price 5-1 winner to kick off Season 1, a season that ended with our guest handicappers returning nearly double the investment on their recommended picks. So, Matt, we're expecting big things again this year. Thanks for joining us. Tell us what derby prep race you picked and what you're thinking about. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back. So, Bill, I'm looking at the Holy Bull on Saturday. So, that's a grade two mile of 16th for three-year-olds, uh, Gulfstream Park. And so, I think this race really uh, begins and ends with Maximus Mischief. Um, you know, will be a heavy favorite. The horse has done absolutely nothing wrong, you know, 3-0. and has been off since December 1st, and I think he could you know, make the case that, if anything, uh, he might come back better than he was. Getting a jockey changed at uh, Jose Ortiz, uh, working great. Really, really no reason to, to bet against that horse, per se. So what I'm going to do is just call out a couple of ones that could be live at a good price and, and you know, either candidates to play underneath or if you're looking for an upset, maybe take a, a swing with one of these. Mm-hmm. So I'll go, I'll go through the rest of the field. <clears throat> so Garter and Ty... Uh, is a Florida bred, you know, has been running okay. I, I don't like the horse up against these. are just in way too deep for me, um, even at the price. The two federal case, um, I'll come back to. The three, Epic Dreamer. Uh, so this horse, I think, is also eligible to improve. Uh, the connections are, are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think I probably like others better. But I, I wouldn't fault anybody for backing that one at a price, especially underneath. Uh, the four, Ever Fast, 
uh, <laughs> doesn't to me fit here at all. I mean, has has been racing with good company, but but not performing. Uh, I just don't think the horse fits unless uh, Romans can really turn that one around. Yeah, a little bit of a reach there. Uh, the five like, Harvey, it? yeah, yeah, it really it really does well uh, for me anyway. So the five Harvey Wallbanger again. You know, this one has been competitive. Uh, I do think uh, it will, will be, you know, closing late, and I think there's a lot of speed in this race. So, again, I wouldn't begrudge anybody making a case for this one at a big price, um, but I'm, I'm not I'm not convinced there. Um, <clears throat> uh, with that, we'll go to the six, uh, Mijos. And uh, so this one, I think, is very likely to be the second choice. Uh, seems to be the pick of a lot of the public handicappers to run second. Um, so I'll just – my observation on this one is that, you know, really the – uh, fractions don't don't impress me, and I, I, the horse is improving. The horse will probably run well, but I, I just at a short price, I, I don't care for that one. Uh, the seven, come on, Jerry. Again, I, I you know really a stab here doesn't doesn't fit, and and uh, doesn't seem to be fast enough. And when you hear my other selection, you'll laugh about me saying that about that one, but that's all right. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the 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 nine Gladiator King, uh, thirty to one, very poor connections. Um, you know, speed and fade, which I think is going to be, uh, you know, a hopeless case against against this field. There's a lot, like I said, a lot of speed in here. So I'll, with that, I'll jump back to the to the two that I, that I'm that I'm going to make a little bit of a case for. So the two federal judge, so Pletcher, Castellano, and so for me, if this horse is truly the third choice, um, and he is somewhere in that kind of, you know nine to two, four to one, seven to two range. Um, I think this horse has a chance to get a terrific trip. Uh, I think Castellano can really negotiate a, a ground saving trip, be behind the first flight and, uh, you know, potentially have the rail open up and now, you know, is it enough to win? I, I'm not so sure, but, but I, I do like this one, um, to hit the exact and, okay. and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, tr- trigger a reasonable payout. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's my rational pick. And, and then with that bill, I'm going to go over to the completely irrational side of things. That's what we so love about you, Matt. I'm go gonna, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to make a case for the 10 going for gold, who's a maiden. Wow. Uh, this horse, yeah. So this horse, uh, three to one morning line, I'm going to say we'll go off maybe close to twice that 50 to one, 60 to one. So this horse, um, there is a, a trainer change. And uh, the horse ran well enough to win twice. And uh, the connections are put in this horse in this race, and against all logic in my mind, uh, because the horse has come up short twice sprinting, and and now we're stretching out the mile on the 16th, putting blinkers on. Uh, I do think the horse is eligible to improve for a few reasons, and that trainer change being one of them. Uh, I think we'll we'll probably like this uh, surface and take to the surface a little bit, in, in my estimation. And the other thing, and this is really kind of a reach, but uh, being all the way outside, at least I think he'll break well. And I, I feel like uh, if the jockey uh, kind of takes a reasonable approach, he's got a chance to just kind of, because of the speed inside him, uh, potentially end up in in a, a decent uh, stocking position, kind of you know too wide in the second flight. Okay. Um, bit of, again, bit of a bit of a reach, but should be a huge price. And uh, you know, could run, could certainly run last, and and then we can have a good laugh about it. But um, I, I kind of like that one underneath uh, to make to certainly outrun his odds and and potentially uh, at least hit the board. 
So that's that's my take, though. Again, you know, I don't I'm not recommending betting into Maximus Mischief, uh, but uh, you know, maybe there's a little value to be found underneath. Yeah, the, the question I have about Maximus Mischief here is uh, there really should be no questions about him, right? Uh, but he does draw an outside post with a short run into the first turn. But, but you know, on the other hand, having said that, that horse has done everything that's been asked of him and more um, in every in every start, right? Um, federal case kind of caught my eye as well. Um, you know, they paid $650,000 for him, so somebody saw something, right? Um as you said, I think he could get a nice trip uh, tucked in along the rail, let the speed go. Javier certainly knows how to ride those types. Um, but the maiden, let's talk about that one for a minute because I know you are a fan of breeding um, and you tend to do some deep dives on breeding. Did you see anything on the breeding that tells you um, this horse is not really a sprinter, uh, it is more of a miler and a two-turn horse? Yeah, so I think you could make the case that this is the best bred horse in the race for uh, going along on the dirt. Now, you know, the running lines don't necessarily support that um, as of yet. And I I look at the replays, and so the horse might be a little bit one-paced. And and, um, so, for example, going over the good surface, shouldn't have liked that good surface at Laurel, but possesses enough natural speed to get out on the lead, but then got, got run down late. Mm-hmm. And and so the horse, I don't think had, has that kind of sprinters burst. So, so I, okay. I think it's potentially more of a one paced animal and, and may, may take to, I think based on breeding will take to, to going along. And uh, so we'll see. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you know, one thing that caught my eye and I learned this at a Saratoga seminar many years ago is that they paid 16 times his, um, you know, breeding price, the, the, the sire's uh, cost of breeding to the sire for him at the OBS sale. Now, <laughs> that being said, as I as I was looking at that, I scrolled through the rest of the field, and you can say that federal case, they paid uh, about a, 150 times his breeding, uh, you know, the, the cost to breed to him <laughs> for. So somebody saw something there, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'll make, I'll make one more observation. This horse reminds me just a tiny little bit of there was a 60 to one maiden that was put in the juvenile Breeders cup two years ago. Now that was Chad Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that horse won that race, uh, as a maiden, but you know, this, this guy's not Chad Brown, but again, this isn't the Bruce either. Right. So, uh, maybe a little bit of a parallel. Okay. All right. So, but we're, you know, for a win betting purposes only, you're saying Maximus mischief on top. Yeah. And so I'm playing in a tournament on Saturday. So from my perspective, if I if I've got the lead, I just need to you know add a few bucks to the total. It, it's it's maximus for sure. Yeah. If I need a, a reasonable chance at a reasonable price federal case, and if I just need to be you know all in on something, I swing just, swing for the cool. fences. <laughs> yeah. 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 We've, all We've all been there, Matt. We've all been there. Well, however you play it, best of luck to you. Um, and we'll we'll record it as maximus mischief. But uh, whatever you need to do, you do what you got to do. Don't be don't be hamstrung by what you uh, told the uh, betters here, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Con- the contest world is a different is a dis- different world, as we all know. Certainly is. All right, Matt. Listen, that's great. Thanks a lot. I hope we uh, get off to as good a start as we did last year. We'll watch those results carefully. Um, and thanks again for your time and your thoughts. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for joining us to kick off Season 2. Join us next week when Chris Larmy gives us his perspective on the NHC as a player. 
Good luck with your plays this weekend, and may the horse be with you.